Romans chapter 4, we are going to finish this chapter. Ooh, look at the progress picking up. I've already warned you it'll be into next year going through this, so you just have to figure it out as we go through. Now, we have to pick up where we left off, and I know that immediately leads to the next question you're all going to ask. Where exactly did we leave off again? (laughs) One salvation by God, salvation by grace through faith, and it is not something that Paul has just cooked up out of thin air, and it is not something that is unique even to the New Testament. It is the culmination of all of God's teaching throughout the Old Testament. Paul is not coming up with something new. He is explaining the realities of Scripture from the very beginning. His test case that we went over last week was Abraham redeemed by God on the basis of faith in Genesis 15, given the symbol of that redemption in circumcision in Genesis 17. We cut there not because that is where Paul's argument stopped, because you guys didn't want me to try to do all 25 verses of this chapter in one week, did you? We might have, we might have just been starting on chapter 5 this week then if we'd done that. <laughs> and we'd, we'd have just finished up last week about 20 minutes ago. So that would have been no fun. No. This is where you get to Paul building on that argument. I've warned you this I've warned you of this before. There's no after about midway point of chapter 2, there is no good place in this book to say, "All right, we're going to stop here and pick up next week with something else." Everything builds upon something else. So, that means you just have to you have an easy job. You just have to remember everything that I've said in the previous weeks. Simple, right? I'm lucky I remember everything I said yesterday, much less the previous week, so we're going to try to recap as we go. But this is the so what portion of Paul's argument in chapter 4. So based on that, we know that salvation is by grace through faith as revealed in all of redemptive history in Scripture. Why do you care? What does this actually mean moving forward, and how does this affect Christian living? And this is where I encourage you because you guys ask such good questions. Let's dive in and answer them, shall we? Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, stop real quick. This is where we get the chance to go back. What, what promise? What are we talking about? Go forth from your country, Genesis 12, and from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's not often that I pick nits with the NASB that we use on Sunday, but I have to pick a nit because they just flubbed this one. And I don't know why, and they know better. Paul is making a very specific argument here that doesn't make any sense in English in this sentence. (laughs) So, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir. What what should he have been if the promise is to his descendants? It should have been they. You know what's actually wrong? The he is right. The descendants is actually wrong. It's technically the singular term. It's to the promise to Abraham and to his seed to his offspring, not plural, but singular. That's why the rest of this is translated correctly with the he. This is not an argument that Paul is again cooked up immediately for the Romans. This is a specific point that he has made before. That's one of the reasons we can do this. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is 
Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant promise previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Paul's Uh, Paul is picking up that argument that he made to the Galatians here for the Romans. The promise to Abraham and to his descendant that he would be heir, that's the descendant, would be the heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham received the promise on the belief that he was trusting in God to accomplish this promise. Put the flesh on this. What is Abraham's faith in? Abraham is saved by grace through faith in what? That what God has promised, God would deliver. What is God promising in the Old Testament? Now, before you say anything else, get this one right. This is nice and simple, correct? When you read your Old Testament and you get to the end, what's the answer? If you got to something other than Jesus, what do you do? Go back, start again. You got the wrong answer and you need to get this right. Part of that is what Paul is building on here. Abraham's faith is in the accomplished work of God, that God would redeem his people, that God would make a holy nation out of a sinful humanity. For Abraham, he's trusting in that accomplishment. For us, looking back, we can see that that accomplishment is fulfilled in who? In Christ. There is nothing unusual, nothing different. Paul is just fleshing this out, to make an incarnation joke, for the Roman church so that they would catch this as well. So the promise to Abraham and to his descendant is that he was coming through, not through the law, if I could speak English we'd be all set, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So this is your circumcision argument taken to its next step. Your status as an heir, as one who will receive the inheritance, is not because of you. It is not something that you have accomplished or you have earned, which is why using the, the heir and an inheritance is a really good example of this, because how many of you picked your parents? How many of you would have picked differently? <laughs> oh, that was cold. You know who raised their hand back there, don't you? My daughter. <laughs> Which, you know what? I respect that. That, that. that is a joke that I would have made. And to leave that sitting on a tee and expecting you not to take advantage of that, I would be disappointed as my child. So, <laughs> yeah, Well, at this point, this is the beauty of it. It doesn't matter. Because she's stuck. Just like you were all stuck with your parents. Not like you woke up one day when you were three and be like, I did a good job picking these parents. This, is, this was a good plan. No. You inherit what you get because of who you are born to. This is your work in Christ as well. You didn't earn it. You don't accomplish it. Christ does. You are in because of who he is and what he has done. You can go back to Galatians 3. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul fleshes this out later on in his ministry in places like Philippians 3. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These are build outs of the point that Paul is making very quickly here. Those who are of, if those who are of law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. There's no purpose in grace through faith if you could earn it. Because what should you do? Go earn it. Go accomplish it. Do what you're supposed to do. The part of the revelation of the law in the revealing work of the law is it reveals what about you and your ability to accomplish it. 
your big, shiny, fat inability that you cannot. Remember, the law has multiple functions. It shows you your sin. It shows you God's holiness. And it also, in the sanctified sense, once you are in Christ, it shows you how now you should live in a world as you seek to honor God. So there's multiple purposes going on. Paul is here beautifully illustrating that first purpose. You cannot. You have no hope of accomplishing of yourself, and that's good news, because if you could, there'd be no basis for you to have faith. You don't go getting a handout if you could just go grab something from your cupboard. If you have it already, you don't need to go get it from someone else. Same example here, verse 15. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also, also is, I'm sorry if I could read English, there also is no violation. So again, the saving work of the law is not an accomplishment, but is a driving force. What do I mean by that? Go back to Galatians 3. It helps us out. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Now, has Paul just told you that if there wasn't for a law, you would not have sinned? No, because that doesn't make sense. You innately know several things. What is the law's purpose here? To drive you to a savior, savior, to reveal your sin. So if no one in human history ever told you it was illegal for you to strangle your neighbor, does that mean strangling your neighbor is okay? Probably not. You, you innately know what? If my neighbor comes over here and strangles me, you know what that probably is? That's probably bad. Which, by the way, is how you should more rightly evaluate your life. Don't evaluate on whether or not you think you should be able to do it to them. Evaluate based on whether or not you think they should be able to do it to you. And then apply the golden rule and go and do likewise. See, you sit there and go, no, 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 I could strangle my neighbor and everything would be fine. As long as he doesn't try to strangle me. That's, that's where the problem comes in because whose life is precious? Who do I, who do I always think has the preciousness, the preciousness of life? Me, because this is the sinfulness of humanity. No, the law doesn't make it wrong. The law reminds you and points out with a shining lamp that you can't miss that it is wrong so that what you know innately is revealed and obvious to all. It reveals your sin. Paul will cover this more when we get to chapter 7, but what the law does a great job of doing is not pointing out that, you know, you should not be strangling your neighbor. Yes, yes, I know, but you know I wanted to, and that's where the problem comes in is the law reveals the heart. And by the way, stop wanting to strangle your neighbor. That's bad. <laughs> Some of you are like, have you met my neighbors? No, and I don't have to. <laughs> um, oh, who is it? Oh, as a good New Englander, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose New England street cred for getting this wrong. It's, um, it's frost, right? Good fences make good neighbors. Yeah, that's not Whitman. That's Frost. Yeah. See, I, I've got to get my, my good transcendental poets correct if I'm going to be a good New Englander. Move to the South and nobody has a fence everywhere and all of us Northerners are going, what is wrong with you people? Put up a fence. How else with the neighbors nowhere to stop? <laughs> it is. New England's a weird little place. The, the revivals of the 17th and 18th century just burned everybody out and everything and we're just like angry. I'll stay here. Over, I'll stay over here on my side. You stay over there on your side and everything will be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, our poetry is like build a fence, keep them over there. But that's neither here nor there. So 
Yeah, don't tell that to New Englanders. Galatians 3 again. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What the law reminds you of is how evil and wicked you are. Now, what's supposed to be the point of that? Are you then supposed to sit, wallow in your own self-hatred and go, I'm bad and I can't do anything good. You're not supposed to be Eeyore, okay? Don't be Eeyore, that's bad. What is that supposed to do to you, Christian? For every look at yourself, what should you do? Take 10 looks at Christ. Your recognition of your sinfulness, of your iniquity, is meant to drive you to the Savior who actually overcomes your sin. If you're still stuck in the wallowing phase, stop that. You have not completed that gospel work. You have only done the first half. Yes, we've acknowledged. Here's the best part. You're wallowing because for some strange, unknown reason, it was a surprise to you that you're sinful. <laughs> Why, again, was that a surprise to you? Was it a surprise to you when everybody else was sinful? No, because you looked at them and went, I've met these people. Of course they're awful. So if, if everybody else is bad, and there's nothing new under the sun, and people are people anywhere they go, and again, I say that as someone who has lived in New England, lived in the South, and lived in the Midwest now. People are people wherever you go. As a radio station I used to listen to reminded me quite well, there's rednecks everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go, there's rednecks. So people are people. Why would you be exempt from the effects of sin since it corrupts everyone and everything? And the answer is you wouldn't be. So stop being shocked at your sin and do what? Run to your Savior, who actually cleanses you from your sin, who actually gives you righteousness, and who actually empowers you and strengthens you to continue to war against your sin and to walk in holiness. This is why you are forever not looking at you, but looking away from you and looking to the work that Christ has done. Let's continue on, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, this is back to that promise, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is, a, who is the father of us all. So here's something that interworking with what Romans has covered. So if you're rewinding in chapter 4, Romans 4.11, talking about Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Paul is picking that back up. This is why the understanding of by grace through faith when Abraham was justified is so important. Abraham's promise is not an ethnic promise. So when you get to the end of your Bible, you get to Revelation, who is gathered around the throne worshiping from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? Because redemption has gone to the ends of the earth. Where is the Great Commission sending the apostles? Where is Jesus' power meant to spread? to the ends of the earth. This is the fulfillment you see at the end. You see Jesus is commissioning there. You see the hope of that at the very beginning of the promise. This is why Abraham has to be justified before circumcision is given. If he's justified after circumcision is given, the argument could be made, no, 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 you have to enter into this covenant, then you get access to that covenant, which by the way, Galatians is in your Bible. <laughs> That's the entirety of the book of Galatians is Paul urging a Gentile church that you don't have to become Jewish Jews first to become Christians. And once you've become Christians, you don't have to be some sort of halfway Jew. You are followers of the work that Christ has done. He can base that on this. 
what was Abraham's status when God redeems him? Why does this matter? Because it makes Abraham the father, not just of the Jews, but of all who believe. He is father of the faithful because of what Christ has accomplished. And by the way, in case you were missing your history, you would have seen this already because this part of Acts has already happened, Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, and if you're curious what words in Acts 10, Peter has gone to Cornelius' house. He has gone to a Gentile house because God has sent him there so that he would preach the gospel. While he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. In other words, they didn't have to become Jews first. They heard the message and they believed and God is rescuing them. And what is the sign of that for the book of Acts in this beginning part of the ministry? Is the signs and wonders that were done at Pentecost are being repeated here in Cornelius' courtyard. What's Peter's next declaration? Nobody can deny that we should baptize these people because it's obvious that God has redeemed them. And basically, here's always the fun work. When God's doing something, should you be in the way? <laughs> it's one of those things we always like to forget. Oh, wait, God is saving those people. Can you believe the nerve of that guy? How dare he? Anytime you say that, always remember he saved you and remember what you are. Don't say that about yourself. I know exactly what you thought. <laughs> but that's kind of the point here. Because you've seen this, we know that it is true. Paul is now giving you the, the rational basis for it out of the Old Testament. So Paul's going to continue because as you can see, we have a comma there, not a period. So verse 17, nice little parentheses here. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. Where, pray tell, is that written? Well, that's back in Genesis 17. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Why has God done that? Back to 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, what exists now, if you're Paul, that did not exist then? What has God called into being? Well, the fulfillment of promise. What promise? Isaiah 43. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals, the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. It's Isaiah talking about springs showing up where they haven't been before. Now stop. Are there springs in Israel? If you're Isaiah, are there already springs in Israel? Should Isaiah have to show up and tell you what is required? And the answer is no. What do you have if you're Israel? You have the covenants. You have the promises. You have the prophets. You have the temple. You have the sacrifices. Where are these dry places? Where do these places not exist? Where are these things not present? Amongst the Gentiles, Israel has not been the salt and the light that God has made them to be. Israel has hoarded this for themselves. They have turned inwardly, which again, we give Israel a bad rap in the Old Testament and we give the disciples a bad rap in the New Testament. Just remember, people are people. And my, my favorite reminder is always, you know, if I had been there at the crossing of the Red Sea, I'd have been Joshua and Caleb. No, you wouldn't. The fact that, you know, we marched a couple hundred thousand people or more out of Israel and then we sent the spies into the land and there were two. <laughs> 
There were two that are like, no, 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 we can do this. We got this. God can do this. And everybody else is like, you've lost your mind, man. We're good. You know, the people that saw God come down on the mountain, who walked through the Red Sea, who saw the manna from heaven, who saw the plagues upon Egypt, were like, you know, God, those tall people in the land, I don't know if he can handle that or not. It's going to be iffy. This is the human curse. This is what we do, is who do we think about first and foremost more often than not? Us. We turn inwardly. Always. Now, again, what's part of Christian sanctification? conditioning yourself, training yourself to recognize who you are in Christ, and then actually living like that. How do you do that? By focusing yourself upon the work of Christ, by looking away from you and to Christ so that you are no longer living for you as a selfish human being does, but you are now living for God and the kingdom that he is building, that your priorities change, that your words change, not because you have just changed yourself by sheer force of will, but because God is changing you from the inside out as you focus upon him and not upon you. What you want, what you do, how you live, how you think, who you are at your core is new as you are focused in upon him and what he has done. So that's the promise. Where then is the actual fulfillment? Well, the end of his life, Peter gives you a picture, 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that he may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To call the church a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, those are all allusions to what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy for what the law in Leviticus was commanding. And Peter's saying, yes, it's all of this that was commanded to Israel is who you are in the church. This is how you are to live. This is who you are to be. Based on whose work again? Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Ooh, a humanity zealous for good deeds? That looks like what the world is, isn't it? <laughs> if only, right? What do we spend all of our times doing? Just to prove to you there's nothing new under the sun, we say what? Yes, 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 we're zealous for good deeds. Just don't ask us to define what goodness is. You have the lawyer coming to Jesus. How do I inherit the kingdom? Follow the law. What does it read to you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, do these and you live. Awesome, I can do that. But just so we're clear, who's my neighbor again? <laughs> <laughs> Got to make sure, where's, where's the line? Like, is there anywhere that I can fudge? Is there, any, is there anybody I can leave off? You know, because that's not the most lawyer thing in human history ever, is it? You know, like, what does is mean again? You know, <laughs> we would never possibly argue over every minute meaning that humanly imaginable. And yet, here we are. So, Paul continues, verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed... This is talking about Abraham. So that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. By the way, I didn't say that about anybody who's older than I am. Paul said that, okay, just so you know. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So this is again, what does Abraham's faith look like? And I mentioned this last week, I'm going to mention it again. Notice what faith actually means and where it is placed. So go back to something like Genesis 18. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Always remember that that's in response to them receiving the promise and Sarah doing what? Laughing. That's why Isaac's name literally is, he laughs. (laughs) Imagine laughing in God's face and your punishment is you have to be reminded of that every single time you look at your kid who you now name laughter. (laughs) Ah. This is why we don't follow the Puritans and name our kids Bible things anymore. We come up, we start running out of names. That's why you ever read like the 17th and 1800s and you see things like kids named Providence and Prudence and things. You know, it's like, what's a good Bible name? You're, you, know, you know you're supposed to live up to that. Never mind. <laughs> now, I said I mentioned this last week. Faith is in God. Faith is not that God. Okay. And this is a fine distinction, but it's a vital and an important distinction. The world would love to argue with you and tell you, yes, yes, you're people of faith. You believe that there is a God. I just don't have that kind of faith. I don't care. (laughs) Remember back to chapter one of this book. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men because that which they know about God, they reject. They know. They know that they know, and we know that they know, and they know that we know that they know. And before I confuse this, I'm going to stop right there. And they say what? Nuh-uh. Basically, you have to think of the world like um, overgrown children that don't want to clean their rooms. No, 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 I can't hear you. No, 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 I don't believe you. No, 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 no. That's how they view their understanding of God. And your Bible just cuts to the chase and says what? Yeah, you do. It's a Ray Comfort video. I've told you this how many times. It's my favorite parts of the Ray Comfort videos. If God were to judge you, how would he, how would he find you? Guilty or not guilty? I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. <laughs> and then they say, no, I don't. And he says, yes, you do. And you know what always happens? They answer his question. Still astounds me to this day that no one has like smacked that man on the Santa Monica boardwalk. But, you know, God bless him. He's braver than I am. Maybe it's the mustache. It catches him off guard. You know, it's probably the accent, actually. I I need a better accent. Then I can catch people off guard. But this difference is important. Your faith is not that God is there. And, oh, I know that there is a God in heaven, and hopefully, no, 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 that's, your faith is, God is there, and he will accomplish his promises. That's what you're living out a life of faith looks like. It is a confidence that you live your life with the knowledge and security that what he has promised he will deliver. That I can forsake the things of this world that they tell me are good because God has declared them to be sinful and wrong. And I can cling to the things that he has told me are good because there is coming a better kingdom. There is coming a righteous world. There is no FOMO in the kingdom, okay? Some of you are looking at me. Their fear of missing out. This is, this is the entirety of the next generation. This is the brilliance of sin and iniquity is with the, with the advance of technology, you know way more than anyone in all of human history has ever known. I mean, just, just remember that there was a stretch. I mean, keep in mind, like, we just go back to our founding. Like, our country in the grand scheme of things is not that old. Like, there are churches in England older than our country. <laughs> Never forget that. Like, there's, there's houses older than our country. But when the revolution was going on, 
in order to get dispatches from Parliament in London to the British Army in the United States, well, what was going to become the United States, could be like a three- or four-week process. Imagine getting an update on a battle and knowing that that is month-old intelligence. <laughs> like, we need to change strategy. You're right, but has anything happened between now and then? Imagine sending orders across and then getting an update that makes those orders null and void and obsolete. And that, could you... We don't even process this because if you want to talk to somebody in England, you can press four buttons on your phone and send them a message and it buzzes in their pocket. That's just... They would have burned you as a witch in the 1600s for this, you know? They'd have stuck the weird pointy nose and made sure you were the same weight as a duck, and then they'd have burned you. Just making sure anybody paying attention got that reference. So Cameron got it, so that's all that matters. <laughs> With that, though, you are aware not just of how broken your world is, but you are aware of your station in the world at all times. And this is why, well, that's not why, but this is one of the reasons why our country has changed as fast as it has changed in my lifetime, is we have become consumeristic to the core because we're forever aware of what? What I don't have that you do, or what I have that you don't. Oh, that makes me feel better. See, I'm so much... And then we're capable of doing what? Getting it. And so we live our entire lives around what? accomplishing the hopes of this world, falling right into line with what we're supposed to be according to the world standard, because Lord forbid, as we think about it, that we should miss out on something that we could have had. It's like, imagine you, you ordered this meal, and then, oh, but that meal was there. That's why, that's why whenever you order, you don't look at the things that goes by the other tables. You're like, aw. Or you do what Cameron does. She orders something, and I order something, and then she drools over mine. Like, mm, get your own, lady. You should have ordered better. <laughs> and just so you know, I will fight you over my food now. <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to eat while looking at my wife. Hey. <laughs> I will share, but that's as far as it goes. <laughs> this is not a godly attitude. This is not living for a kingdom. This is living for the world. But this is the advance of sin in our world, is that it's all-consuming. It's all-corrupting. You are forever bombarded with what the neighbor got. And it used to be what the neighbor got. Now it's what people on the other side of the world got, or what they accomplished, or what that friend down the street. You're just constantly hyper-aware of what it is and what it's going on. The gospel message is, who cares? You don't take any of that with you, and you are looking for a city whose builder is God, not one that is made by human hands, which means you are supposed to be looking for something better. And you can, because you haven't lost anything. That every good and perfect gift comes from above, and if you don't have it, it's because you don't need it. And I don't care what you want, you're supposed to be asking for your needs first. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and trusting that God is accomplishing what is needed for you in the world. And as you live in that manner, you are living for the fulfillment of what he has promised. Now, we don't because we waver in our faith. Not that God is there, but that God will actually deliver. A steadfast faith knows what is coming, knows what is true in the world, and lives accordingly. Now, before you get back to beating yourself up, you know what I know about you? You don't have that steadfast faith. <laughs> because you're not perfect. And while I would prefer that you were, because it would make my job a heck of a lot easier, <laughs> but it might actually put me out of a job. It's like my father, who was a respiratory therapist, used to tell people to not quit smoking. <laughs> yeah, you should probably quit smoking, huh? I need a job, you know. <laughs> used to watch him tell people that. No, I need something to do. So here, take this, you do this, do the exercise, but don't quit smoking. I'll see you next week. It's like, Dad, eh? 
So don't get better. (laughs) I need the business, right? (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm also a realist about who you are and what you are in this world. And I recognize what? That you, like me, are a definite work in progress, but that God has not forsaken. This is part of our faith, that God has not forsaken and God has not abandoned us. And when you look at yourself and go, my faith is not what it should be. Yes, now look where? Back to Christ. Who is he? What has he accomplished? What is he building up and now do what? Move forward with your head held high, knowing that you are a child of the king, that you are redeemed in his courts and that you are marching in the right direction. And yes, there were speed bumps and yes, you stumbled in some potholes and yes, you probably fell into a ditch a few times, but the road didn't go anywhere. The destination didn't change and the Holy Spirit has not abandoned you because he will not abandon you. This is what your faith actually is. It is the accomplishments of God daily in your world, which is why I tell you, don't look at this failure. Look at where you are versus where you were however long ago that was. Where did you start? Where have you gotten to? Rejoice, Christian. Which steps do we celebrate again? All of them. I went afoot. Go team. I mean, think, you, think of yourself like a baby. I'm serious about this. Parents, when your kid took their first steps, did you be like, did you sit there and go, you know, a little wonky on the side and a bit wobbly. They could probably do better. <laughs> Is that what you did? Or did you go, oh, they're walking, they're walking, they're walking, they're walking, they're walking. And when they gave you the mama, did you go, you know, we really got to work on that diction there. The enunciation is just not what it should be here. Is that what you said? Or did you go, no, 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 they said my name first. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. That's, that's how you should view you in the kingdom. No, you didn't get as far as you wanted. You got somewhere. Rejoice. No, you didn't get everything that you thought you should have accomplished in faith. You got somewhere. Rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 21. And being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able to also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. This is what it looks like in action. This is what the Old Testament is building you towards. This is what Jesus was celebrating. This is what James, we talked last week about James and Paul talking about the same thing from a different side. This is what they're explaining and teaching. This is the celebration that we have. Hebrews 11. Therefore, There was born even of one man, in him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. You can go back to James, what we read last week. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Why? Because of what God had done. Now, for Abraham, it was what God had done. You know that more specifically as what Christ has done. Nothing's changed. You just got more details. Rejoice. Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. We have to stop there because this is big. You're going to love this. All right. Doctrine of uh, systematic theology. Oh, I I should give you this one as a quiz. Not often I get extra pop quiz time. With very little exception, we arrange, when you do a systematic theology book or you arrange a systematic theology course, you try to arrange it in a way that makes sense and builds. So you want to cover your most important doctrines that have biggest impacts on your foundations at the beginning. Like, you don't start a systematic theology with eschatology. (laughs) 
<laughs> be like, what happens after, what, which, which view of the millennium is correct? You don't start there because the answer to that question depends on so many other things that you need to be aware of. You also don't start with you because who you are is determined by so many other things in theology. So if you're starting a systematic theology, what doctrine should you start with? See, everybody says that. Everybody's wrong. <laughs> everybody immediately says you should start with what we call theology proper, the doctrine of God. No, you shouldn't. You know what theology you have to establish before that? You have to establish bibliology. You have to have a doctrine of scripture because how do you know anything about God? You have to do what? Bug in the jar. <laughs> Remember our analogy, the bug in the jar will never understand the boy who put him there unless the boy can do what? Explain it in a way the bug can understand. You're the bug in the jar. In order for you to understand God, you can't just sit there and stop and sit out in the woods and go, because believe me, humanity's tried this, tried this. What does it look like when people just get together and go sit in a fire circle out in the woods and be like, let's understand God together. Somebody shows up with bongos and it gets weird very quickly. And I told you last week, there's no longer bongo guy, there's now it's guitar guy, right? Dude with his acoustic guitar just sitting there, he notes three chords, just sits there and strums, and every song amazingly fits those three chords. <laughs> if you've ever been to a Christian camp, you have met this guy. It's okay. No, you start with bibliology. bibliology. You have to have a doctrine of Scripture first. So wait for it. As Christians, our doctrine of Scripture is that the Bible actually comes from God, that, you are, that men moved by God spoke. We'll probably read that in a minute if I'm double-checking right. Yes, we will. Let's answer this real fun and silly question. Does God speak for fun? Was God just bored in heaven one day and be like, you know what I should do? I should talk to people and see if they listen to me. That'll be entertaining. What do you think should happen next? No, God spoke with what expectation? That people would listen and then do what? Actually act on his words. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. Abraham had faith. Abraham didn't need anybody to write down that he had faith. Hey, hey, write that down that I got the answer correct. I want everybody to know for all of human history that I was right. Is that the point that was going on? No. 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's writing that about what's going on in the events of Exodus, but the same thing here with Abraham. Why do you need to know that it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, that his faith is what has saved him? Because you need to know what the actual accomplishment of salvation looks like. You don't need to sit down and hope and figure it out because... Give humanity five minutes and an opportunity to figure out salvation for themselves. You know what they're going to come up with? A list. It's what we've done every single time we make up our own religion. We come up with a list. If you don't believe me, go find a cult somewhere. You know what they're going to give you after about five minutes? A list of some shape, form, or fashion. Mormonism did this. Mormonism defines your sin not as anything internal to you, as if the Sermon on the Mount didn't actually exist. Mormonism defines your sin as everything external to you. And their hope is that after we've done all the good works that we're supposed to do, that hopefully God will get us across the finish line at the end. That's not biblical salvation. Big shock. Joseph Smith, who could barely read, made up some stuff in the wilderness of New York. Who'd have thunk it? And no, I don't care if I'm upsetting anybody who has Mormon ties. <laughs> We actually had a lady for a while who used to be Mormon. <laughs> Every time I'd tell a story like this, she'd just nod like, yep, yep, that's what they did. That's what they believed. That's what they taught us. 
Um, Jehovah's Witnesses will give you the same thing. Um, Islam gives you the same thing. You make up a religion. You know, we're going to give you after about 35 seconds of you joining, you get your list of here's the stuff you need to accomplish. It's biblical Christianity. It says you can't. It is God who must accomplish. And you need this written down for you because you're stubborn, because I'm stubborn, because people are stubborn. And this is your reminder. So again, 2 Peter 1. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Bible actually has a purpose to communicate something to you, as, by the way, does everything that God does. So you go to things like John 12. Jesus is praying, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Was Jesus standing there going, I needed to hear dad's voice today to make sure I was okay. No, the voice was for who? The crowds who were around. And by the way, the purpose and work of God speaking and acting has never changed. So John 21. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you, have, you may have life in his name. So John wasn't sitting around, you know what I should do? I should write a gospel so that people will know how wonderful of an author I am. No, he wrote the works of Jesus so that you would actually have faith in this person, so that you would actually have your sins forgiven, so that they would actually accomplish something. Again, the summation that Paul gives in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what you may ask, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Why would we need such things? So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work so that you would have what you need to accomplish what you are supposed to for the work of the kingdom. So it is not for Abraham's sake that it's written, but it's for our sake. Verse 24, to whom it will all be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Because you need to know, I mean, let's, let's extend the calendar out. Realize that when we talk about a faith that is credited, a salvation credited by faith to Abraham. You are talking about events that were occurring, oh, 3,700 years ago. <laughs> when we're talking about extending this down, there is no time period outside of God's reach. If you told Abraham, yes, the faith that you are birthing here, the salvation being revealed here is something that will bless people about 4,000 years later, he'd have looked at you and said, huh? And yet here you are. And if God should tarry another 4,000 years, you will look at that accomplishment in that day and say, huh, cool. <laughs> Which is pretty much what Abraham said. So again, Romans 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And in the meantime, you have to trust whose timetable, who's working. God's. As Jesus told the crowds, Abraham longed to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. Because at the end of the day, what do you celebrate? 
If you're Abraham, wouldn't you like things to be wrapped up quicker and get to the end and get to that wonderful kingdom and all the good stuff and sin to be undone and evil to be conquered? Yes. Imagine 1,700 years after that promise is given and you see the work of Christ and go, sweet, yes. Why does Abraham rejoice? Different perspective. Because as the time goes on and as life moves forward, you're not living for the things of the world. You're living for the things of the kingdom. And yes, that's easier when you're in his presence, but at the same time, it's still what you're longing for in this place here and now. So what's a good summation for all this? Verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That's a pretty good summary of the, of the work of Christ right there. That's both parts of it right there. The double work of Christ. He, was, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. That's bearing our sin. Things like 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be a sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the one who did that was raised because of our justification. In other words, giving us a righteousness. Philippians 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, the reason why I say that's a great summation, do you notice what the hinge for all of Paul's argument is? Abraham, justified by grace through faith. Humanity. Needing the work accomplished in order to be children of Abraham. You, unable to live this and accomplish this by yourself. Where do you constantly keep having to turn around and look to? Christ. Your hinge in all of this is Christ. I warned you at the very beginning of Romans. What was something, see if you've remembered. What was the thing I told you as you read all of this you have to keep in the back of your mind? Do you remember? There was one doctrinal idea you had to keep in the back of your mind. I'm going to remind you again because it's coming soon. It's going to be very, very important. That Paul has an utterly, completely realized understanding of the sovereignty of God. That God rules and reigns in all things. Not some things, but all things. You don't have a world without God. You don't have an accomplishment without God. You don't have a you without God. You can't understand Romans without recognizing that there, there is a God upon his throne ruling and reigning over all of his creation. Now, that's good news when you get to salvation because you can't. Who can? That sovereign God. Paul's theology demands a sovereign ruling Christ to accomplish salvation. The book of Romans demands a sovereign ruling Christ to accomplish salvation. Your life demands a sovereign ruling Christ to accomplish salvation. This is why you have to look away from you. This is why you have to follow in the footsteps of Paul and die and take up a cross because you have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Again, Paul doesn't come out of thin air. That's what Jesus warned the followers was going to happen. What was going to be needed is as you lean on Christ, you are leaning on the one who actually can accomplish these things. You forget that. For even a second, you've just undone the, undone the steadfastness of your faith. Now again, guess what you're going to do on a regular basis? because <laughs> sinful selfish people live how sinfully and selfishly it's amazing how that works 
which is why you have to look back to Christ and recognize how was how were Adam and Eve redeemed? What did Adam and Eve do that was so 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 so, so that was so wonderful? Hey, look, leaves. This will work. I mean, which by the way, if you've never seen it, go go dig around on YouTube. Look up the skit guys on Adam and Eve. If you ever want to laugh hysterically, they do. It's like twenty minutes long. They teach the entirety of that in a way that you will leave you in stitches. You will actually be pausing it while you learn things because you're laughing too hard. Look up the skit guys, Adam and Eve. They got the leaves. It's it's hysterical. One of the guys is doing a share impression. It's it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's everything you can just imagine based on that description. They can't cover their sin. They can't cover their nakedness. You want to go out into the world of storms and winter with palm leaves? <laughs> Does this sound like a good plan? No, it is God who makes covering for them. Noah's doing what? Living life. You're not even told what Noah's great accomplishment is, and yet God redeems him. Abraham is doing what? Joshua warns you that he's an idolater. And yet, what do we have? a promise that is given. You have a constant by grace through faith. Moses is living in the backside of nowhere in Midian just trying to hide from the Egyptians. Get your butt back there, get the work done. David is the least of his family and forgotten in the field. You have a constant salvation by grace through faith in the entirety of your Bible, and this is where you should rejoice because God did not forget them, God did not abandon them, God did not forsake them, and he hasn't you either. Your faith is in a God who is ruling and reigning and accomplishing, not just then, but four millennia later and four millennia from now, if it's what's needed, he will build what he is building. He will save who he is saving and he will bring you to a good end. You trust in him. And this is the focus of your life and the hope of your existence. Christian, rejoice. You've been brought into a good kingdom. You have been empowered by a good Holy Spirit and you're being strengthened day by day. Therefore, what he has promised, he will deliver. Therefore, because of what he has done, you are actually good. Let's pray.